0: The time was during World War II. The place was an internment camp in Japanese-occupied China in a northern province in China, a place called Weisien in the province of Shantun. There, the children in this camp called one of the men of the camp who was interned there, Uncle Eric. And the camp was all that you'd expect of an internment camp during World War II. 1,800 people were crammed into a single space that measured 150 by 200 yards. That's about the size of two soccer fields. Not enough food, not enough clean water, unsanitary conditions, disease, brutal mistreatment by the guards, all the things that go along with those kind of things. And the prisoners of the camp were foreign nationals who had been living in China when Japan invaded And these foreign nationals were called enemies of Japan. And for this, they were interned. Primarily, they were Christian missionaries and their families, including hundreds of women and children from the China Inland Mission that originally had been founded by Hudson Taylor. And Uncle Eric stood out among the people of the camp. Just two weeks before being arrested himself, he'd sent his family to safety in Canada, where his wife was from, and then he continued to preach and do evangelism in the rural villages in China until he was arrested. And Uncle Eric understood that the prisoners of the camp were not going to make it physically. They weren't going to make it emotionally or spiritually in any way unless they did certain things. So he organized athletic events, for one thing. One of the men who was a child in the camp at the time wrote about this. Despite the weakening physical conditions of the people as the war dragged on, the spirit of competition and camaraderie in sports was very good for us. Young and old watched excitedly. Besides basketball, soccer, and rounders, I was going to look that up. I have no idea what rounders is. Something they would do in England, I think, or Scotland. But Uncle Eric, he said, also taught us his favorite hymn. Be still, my soul, the Lord is on thy side. Bear patiently the cross of grief or pain. Leave to thy God to order and to provide. In every change, he faithful will remain. Be still, my soul, thy best, thy heavenly friend, through thorny ways leads to a joyful end. And the man continues to write, These words were a great comfort to one of our missionaries who was not only separated from her husband throughout the war, but whose son was accidentally electrocuted by a bare wire running to one of the searchlight towers. Uncle Eric also organized school classes for the kids who were school-aged in the camp. Uh, They were taught by the missionary women. He organized Sunday school classes and Bible studies and prayer meetings. During his time at the camp, also, Uncle Eric wrote a little book and distributed it for the purpose of encouraging and strengthening his fellow prisoners. He called the book The Disciplines of the Christian Faith. The Disciplines of the Christian Faith. And basically the book was what we would call a one-year devotional, where every day you could could read God's word and you could study and he'd give some background. One of the neat things about the book was he, he apologized over and over because he would quote hymns by memory. He would quote large portions of books by memory, but he couldn't remember where he got it because he didn't have it there at the time. So he would apologize and say... Some, so-and-so said this, but I don't know where, or here's my favorite hymn, or, or whatever. But it, it, it was a time and a, a guide to get the people into God's word, into prayer, into studying the word of God, into meditation, so that they could be strengthened and encouraged in their faith during that horrible, horrible time. The book was meant to be a year of discipleship training, basically, training in God's word. There was chapters on God, on Jesus Christ, on the kingdom of God, the life of Paul, the epistle to the Romans, and then, of course, there was a chapter on heaven and a chapter on victory that were very special to these people. Eric was actively involved in helping these suffering Christians discipline themselves for the purpose of godliness. Whatever the world, whatever the flesh, whatever the devil threw against them, They were disciplined for godliness, which the Apostle Paul said brought promise for their present life and also for the life to come. Uncle Eric died of a brain tumor just months before they were released and the war ended. All of Scotland mourned. During his funeral in Edinburgh, every business in the entire country of Scotland closed down. Thousands upon thousands lined the streets to mourn their national hero. You see, Uncle Eric was also Eric Little, the Olympic hero who had refused to run in the 100-meter race because the heat was held on a Sunday. And he went on to break the world record in the 400 meters in the 1924 Olympics. His life was immortalized in that favorite movie, Chariots of Fire. And there's that tremendous scene in the movie where Eric is training for the Olympics that are coming up, but he's also struggling when to go to China or if to go to China. He kind of knew that that was God's purpose for him, but people around him were kind of confused about what was going on with that. And there's a scene in the movie where Eric's sister characterizes those who think Eric should forget running and get on with missions. Now, in real life, his sister was behind his running all the way, but at least she becomes the fall guy in the movie For this idea that shows the struggle. You know, should he be training that hard for the Olympics? Should he be doing these things? Or should he just get ready to go to China and go to China? And in the movie, after a particular evangelistic meeting, Eric asked his sister to go for a walk with him. And as they walked in the lush, green Scottish hills, they stopped and Eric said to his sister, I know that God made me for a purpose. And that purpose is in China. But he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. And if you've ever seen any of the, saw the movie or you've seen any of the old newsreels, you can download those on the internet of Eric running. He had a style and a running gait that just shouldn't have worked. Because the more he felt God's pleasure, the more his head went back, the more his mouth would go open looking towards heaven, the more air would come into his mouth, and sometimes his arms would almost flail out. Wide. But when he ran, he felt God's pleasure. You see, feeling God's pleasure was the motivation for Eric Little's disciplined life, the disciplined life that prepared him for the Olympics as well as the disciplined life that prepared him to encourage and strengthen and disciple others, even in the worst conditions possible, in an intern camp in China. Paul wrote his letters to First and Second Timothy to his son in the faith, a man, a young pastor by the name of Timothy. And before Paul exhorts Timothy to discipline or train himself for the purpose of godliness, Paul gets to the why. Why discipline yourself? Why self discipline yourself? In the case of the Christian families at the internment camp of in, it was so that they would be strengthened, so that they would be encouraged and remain faithful to God even unto death, if that should take place. In other words, there's always going to be something that would try to take them out something that would try to take them out of faithfulness, something that would take them out of effectiveness, something that would take them out of their fruitfulness of the Christian life, something that would discourage them and make them want to give up and quit. In Timothy's case, as he pastored the church at Ephesus, he faced false teachers within the church, savage wolves in sheep's clothing. They taught myths They turned to fruitless discussions, wanting to be teachers of the law, but they strayed from God's truth. I can just see, Timothy, every time he would sit down in a circle and try to teach a Bible study, there's these guys getting their stuff in, and let's talk about this and that. This is really truth. You know, you can imagine how discouraging that would be. In Ephesus, there were those who would not endure sound doctrine, but they would accumulate to themselves teachers who tickled men's ears. You know, so he's thinking he's holding this great Bible study. He's preaching on a Sunday morning and everybody else is going down the street because, hey, we got to hear this guy, you know, and then people come back and say, you should have heard what so-and-so said. Man, that was really good as they tickled ears. And then there were people who were lovers of self, lovers of money, arrogant, disobedient to parents, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God who held to a form of godliness but denied its power. And when you read both letters to Timothy, you see that Timothy wanted to give it up, he wanted to throw in the towel. And who could blame him? So Paul said things like, Timothy, you need to rekindle the gift that is within you. Get the fire back. So please turn once again to Paul's first letter to Timothy. First <coughs> Timothy chapter four, verse one. The fourth chapter of 1 Timothy at verse 1, we're going to back up a little bit from where we read before. As Paul encourages Timothy, he first of all reminds Timothy of the times and the dangers of the times in which he lived. First verse 1 of 1 Timothy chapter 4, But the Spirit, that is the Spirit of God, explicitly says that in later times some will fall away, literally apostize from the faith. Paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Now the first thing we have to understand here is what Paul meant by later or latter times. What are the later or latter times? The later times to which Paul refers to here began, as we see it biblically, with the ascension of Jesus Christ to the right hand of the Father. That kicked in the later times, or what we call the last days. When Jesus commissioned his disciples to go into all the world, and he was caught up in the clouds, that event signaled the later times, which are also called the last days. When you read the New Testament, the Apostle Peter, the Apostle Paul, and James all wrote to his, their hearers that they lived in the last days, in the, the later days. When the Holy Spirit was poured out at Pentecost, when we looked at that, the Old Testament prophet Joel dated that as being in the last days, in these last days. I like to joke about this a little bit because the Bible says a thousand years is like a day unto the Lord. So if a day unto the Lord is like a thousand years, according to God's timetable, we're just finishing up the second day. Of the last days. At least it's plural. That makes it, makes it last days. But the point, of course, is that everything that characterized Timothy's day, everything that characterizes the last days, the later or latter days, all the false teachers, all the doctrines of demons, all the deceitful spirits, all the ear ticklers, ticklers and the falling away from the faith, characterize the day in which we live the today. In fact, we got into that in our Sunday School class this morning as we were talking about what, what the Apostle John, as he wrote the first letter to John, was dealing with in the church. We just, you know, we just kept thinking of one false teaching after another, and we, we talked about those things. The difference is today is that because of technology and the internet and TV and all those kind of things, you know, nowhere, because anywhere you turn, that is, you, you find these things. All the hypocrisy, all the apathy, all the following away that characterized Timothy's day characterized ours. We could walk out the doors of the church and do a man-on-the-street interview, as it were, and if you really asked the right question, you would find what? Lovers of self, lovers of money, arrogance, disobedience to parents. There's going to be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Lots of people hold to a a form of godliness, might even be churchgoers, but they have denied its power. So what does Paul want Timothy to do so that he might survive, that he might remain faithful in these later days? It's the same thing that Paul would tell each and every one of us to do, so that we might be faithful in these last days. So Paul tells Timothy to do two things. First of all, he says, point these things out, and secondly, Timothy, discipline yourself. Verse 6 of 1 Timothy chapter 4. He says, in pointing out these things to the brethren, you'll be a good servant of Jesus Christ, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. Now, Timothy can't point these things out without what? The proper intake. He needs to study God's word. He needs to be nourished in the the good food of, of the words of faith, constantly nourished on sound doctrine, which is literally healthy teaching. There's teaching that brings bad health. There's teaching that brings health. Nourish yourself uh, on the strong teaching of the sound doctrine. And if you turn over a page or two to 1 Timothy chapter 6 at verse 3, you see the the, the contrast among the, the ear ticklers at Ephesus. Chapter 6, verse 3. He says, If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing, but he has a morbid interest. I like that word morbid. A deathly interest. This, this brings bad health. This brings even death. In controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. Sound doctrine, healthy teaching, that's what brings spiritual health. It's that which nourishes the soul, it feeds the soul in a way that conforms a person to godliness. We'll talk a little bit more about godliness in a moment, but it's it's what makes a person godly. While unhealthy doctrine or teaching is characterized by this morbid interest in things that are controversial and And there's disputes about words and what they mean and and those kind of things. And all you get is envy and strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of, of gain. Timothy, however, was to be nourished constantly on the words of faith, of sound or healthy doctrine. Study God's word, Timothy. Meditate on God's word. Apply it to your life. It's nourishment to your soul. I like a couple of the Old Testament prophets in this regard as they metaphorically talked about the intake of God's word in their lives. The prophet Jeremiah said to the Lord, Your words were found and I ate them. And your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I have been called by your name, O Lord of hosts. And then Ezekiel recorded, Then the Lord said to me, Son of man, eat what you find. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he fed me this scroll. He said to me, Son of man, feed your stomach and fill your body with this scroll which I'm giving to you. Then I ate it and it was sweet as honey in my mouth. Then he said to me, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak with my words to them. Here's the basic thing that Paul was telling Timothy And the word was saying to both Jeremiah and Ezekiel. If you don't take it in, you have nothing to give out. You have to take it in. The word meditate means kind of like chewing on it, letting it do. It's nourishing thing as you enjoy its flavor and those kind of things. That if you're going to be an effective servant of God in this generation or effective servant of God in any generation, we must be nourished on the word of God. Timothy, in order to point these things out, And stand against all these false teachers. You must be nourished in God's word. Jeremiah, in order to fulfill your calling, you must take the word of God and eat it. Appropriate it and joy and delight will confirm your calling. Ezekiel, take this scroll and eat it. It's going to taste as sweet as honey. And then go to the house of Israel and speak God's word to them. A diet of spiritual junk food isn't just just isn't going to cut it. It's not going to help people get through hard times. It won't help people grow in Christ. There's a lot of stuff being taught today that leaves people spiritually lethargic, spiritually sick. It leaves them complacent. It leaves them indifferent. It leaves them self-centered and unprepared for whatever the Lord may allow them to face in life. So in telling Timothy to discipline himself for the purpose of godliness. Paul makes reference to what he calls worldly fables or myths. Back to 1 Timothy chapter 4 at verse 7. He says, But I have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. Have you ever had one of those things that Paul or somebody in the Bible says, I wish he wouldn't have put it that way. I've got to explain that on a Sunday morning. <laughs> but on the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Now, Paul was using a sarcastic epitaph that was very common in that day. Sadly, most women, all women that day were uneducated. Most men considered them with disdain. It's Middle Eastern culture in that day wasn't very much different than Middle Eastern culture of this day. But the phrase old women's myths, as Paul used it, became a term of derision for what somebody else was talking about or what what they believed. And so, it's not against the women, but it's against what Paul calls the myths. It's a derision of the myths. It's the myths that Paul is condemning. It's not casting aspersions on women. In Paul's writing, myths are teachings that are contrary to God's word. They are teachings that are not spiritually healthy. And in most cases, even dangerous and and damaging to the soul. They are teachings that take a person away from God rather than draw him closer to Christ. Myths inhibit a person's growth in Christ. You know, people get into all kinds of stuff and think, wow, this is really cool, I've got to get into all this kind of stuff before they go too far. I was listening to a preacher one day and he was saying that one of the best things that somebody told him early in his ministry was, when you're preaching or teaching, stay in the middle of the stream." Stay in the middle of the stream. He said, there's nothing wrong with going down a tributary once in a while. Go down that tributary. You know, study the book of Daniel. Talk about the last days. Talk about the signs of the times. But he said, always come back to the middle. Because you're, and then go down the stream of, of God's word. Because he says, so many people get down that tributary. And they go, wow, this is cool. This is neat. And before too long, they start sifting everything they hear or they say through their sieve. Of what they think is going to happen. And before too long, they're preaching from a swamp or teaching from a swamp instead of preaching or teaching from the tributary or from the, the center of the stream of, of God's Word. Don't, don't, you know, there's nothing wrong with studying or going down a rabbit trail, as some of you guys call it once in a while, but always, always come back. So Paul wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Timothy, preach the Word. Ton logon. That is the theme verse for Dallas Theological Seminary. Preach the word. I remember one time I had the opportunity to hear John Wolvard uh, preach or teach in, in seminary, a uh, chapel one day, 90,000 years old, <laughs> sitting in a wheelchair. You know, they wheel this guy up to the microphone, you know, put the microphone at his wheelchair level, and I go... Oh, man, you know, Walverd's a great guy. Isn't this going to be a little embarrassing about, you know, what's, what's he going to say? What is he going to do? And he leaned into the microphone, Karuksan ton logon, preach the word. <laughs> and then he went on for 45 minutes about how to preach sound doctrine. I go, yeah, God's not done with him yet. <laughs> it was just really cool preach the word be ready in season and out of season whether you're in a wheelchair or not in a wheelchair reprove rebuke exhort with great patience and instruction for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine but wanting to have their ears tickled they'll accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths Now, for Paul, there's only two things here. There's the truth of God's word, and there's the myths. That's it. Timothy have nothing to do with the myths. But on the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. The Greek word translated discipline is the word gumnadzo. We get our word gymnasium from it, gumnadzo. In fact, that's what gumnadzo means. Gumnadzo is what the athletes did when they went into the gym the gunabzot, or whatever, however we want to say that. It's how they trained and disciplined themselves. Now Paul has in mind, and we've been on these athletic metaphors now for several weeks, the word picture of what an athlete does in training for the competition. We saw that last week when we were talking about the Ithmian Games, that they trained 10 months before the Games for the events, but the last month they had to go to Corinth, they had to live in Corinth, they went to the gymnasium or they went out on the field and the athlete was supervised in the gym or on the field so that he could prove himself worthy to compete in the games. That is the gymnasium of the soul as Paul is using it here. This is where you do those things that produce godliness in your own life. Bible study, prayer, meditating on God's word, being nourished in the word, feeding your soul, working out in God's word, as it were. These are the things that Eric Little called the disciplines of the Christian life in which he gave to those people. Now, Chuck Swindoll points out two things concerning this kind of discipline using the athletic metaphor, as Paul uses the analogy. And he says, first of all, Conditioning involves repetitive training exercises so that the athlete's mind and the appropriate muscle groups learn to work together reflexively and automatically. He says conditioning combines endurance and skill. Conditioning turns gain-winning abilities into habits. And then secondly, and this, this is very important, no one can condition someone else. An athlete can seek out a coach to help him with conditioning, but he cannot hire someone to do the work for him. Condition yourself. Check the internet, look through the yellow pages. If you ever find at least a dieter or rent a runner, let me know. I want the number. Conditioning is between you and God. Conditioning is between you and God. And notice also that Paul says there's a goal in mind for conditioning. Runners condition themselves by what? Primarily running. They do stretching exercises and, and may lift weights or do things for the appropriate muscle groups, but you've got to get out and run. Uh, Weightlifters condition themselves primarily how? By, by lifting weights. Each trained for a specific, with a specific skill for a specific skill to compete in a specific event. So we ask the question, what is the event as Christians for which we train? The event that Paul has in mind is godliness. Condition yourself towards godliness. Paul uses the Greek word for godliness ten times in his writings, and eight of them appear in 1 Timothy. Godliness is central to Paul's advice to Timothy. Now you ask people, you know, what does godliness mean to you? You're going to get a variety of answers. Some picture a monk removed from the challenges of the world, studying, praying, meditating, humming hymns behind the walls of a a monastery. Others picture with godliness a squeaky clean, Bible-toting, do-gooder, naive, moralistic, annoyingly innocent. But in its basic sense, in Paul's writing, godliness means, or a godly person is one who ceases to be self-centered in order to become God-centered. A person who ceases to be self-centered in order to become God-centered. So what does it mean to be God-centered? We look to Christ as we do with all things. Christ became a man. And as a result of his earthly ministry and God-centeredness, we see how God intended all humanity to live and to behave. He shows us what kind of character we are to possess. How we are to treat others In other words, Jesus is our unblemished example of godliness. Therefore, a godly person is a Christ-like person, a Christ-like person. Therefore, our goal as Christians, as we train ourselves for godliness, is to become more and more like Christ. In its essence, that is godliness, to become like Christ. To go to the gymnasium of the soul, as it were, and train ourselves towards godliness is to train ourselves to become more and more like Jesus Christ. And in verse 8 of 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul then turns to the results of training for godliness, for Christlikeness. He says in verse 8, For bodily discipline is only of little profit. Now, there's some profit, but it's little profit. And isn't that the truth? You know, they tell me that 30 days after I stop working out, I've lost it all. <laughs> it only takes 30 days. And the older you get, it takes less than that. You know, if you're like me, you find out because of age, you'll probably never again ride up your bicycle in one shot up Cemetery Hill to come up to the church without having to stop in the middle. Or riding up the hill nonstop may be more acceptable than death. And so. <laughs> And so I will choose at that point. Or, you know, I was, I was stopped halfway up the time one time, and I thought I was doing pretty good. I was watching the ducks out in the field, the green field out there, and looking out on the foothills, and I thought I was looking pretty good. And a car pulled up, and she rolled down her window and said, Are you okay? <laughs> oh, I just was enjoying nature for just a moment there. But Paul says... Bodily discipline is only a little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Last week, we looked at that promise for the life to come, those crowns, those rewards that we'll receive when we stand before Jesus Christ, the crown of righteousness, the crown of life, the crown of glory, the crown of rejoicing, the imperishable crown, that after we have run the race, and then there's the ultimate prize. We... Our children of God has not yet appeared what we shall be, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. Christ likeness, the ultimate prize. The ultimate promise for the life to come is that we will be like Jesus Christ. But here Paul says godliness also holds promise for the present life. Stuff we're going through now. It's just not about what we're going to receive at the end of the race when we all get to heaven, what a glory that will be. It'll be glory. But there's good stuff now. It's not just what you're going to be like when you get to the end of the race. It holds promise for now. When you go to the gym of your soul, you are more and more being transformed into the image of the Savior. When you go to the gym of your soul, your mind is being renewed, as Romans chapter 12 says. And as Paul said in Ephesians, as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Some people, because they haven't been to the gymnasium of the soul, they go with whatever fun thing they heard last and and run with that. And it's the trickery of men, the deceitfulness and deceitful scheming. But if we've trained ourselves, we don't run after that stuff. And when we suffer and go through difficult times, even when we face something as horrible as an internment camp or prison in Iran or whatever it is, we discover because we have been in the gymnasium of our soul that we know him. We experience Christ. We experience the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings and we are conformed, being conformed to his death. Whatever the world, the flesh, and the devil throw at us, we prevail Because we are disciplined for godliness. You know, one of the things the physical trainers tell you to do is keep a mental picture up in front of your mind of what you want to become or what you want to gain. You know, just keep that in front of you as a goal. The weight loss shows on TV do that. What will you look like when you lose all those pounds? How will you feel? What will it be like when your ailments go away? Now you can buy a treadmill a machine with the TV built in right there, and you, you can get your TV, your DVDs, and then that's all. You can hook your body up, and it gives you all the stuff: how your body's doing, what your pulse rate, and all those kinds of things are doing. And I, I don't know how well that really works for motivation. I think the point is that you don't have to give up your entertainment time in order to do bodily discipline. I don't know. You know, I guess maybe you can apply the, apply the same mindless approach to working out as you do to everything else, but. One of the reasons I like to ride my bike, not only for the physical exercise I get, because it gets me outside. It gets me out into God's creation. And riding a bike is perfectly compatible with meditating on God's word. I can think and concentrate on God's word at the same time. Watch out for that idiot that's going to make the right turn No, never. <laughs> before I get down there. But Paul gives us the motivation. He shows us our motivation for disciplining ourselves for godliness. It's in verse 9 of 1 Timothy chapter 4. He says it's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. Whenever you see that in Paul's writing, this is something that has become a catchphrase, as it were, already in the early church. This is an axiom that everybody in the church in Christianity says, Yeah, that's true. He says, For it is for this we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all, especially of believers. We fix our hope on the living God. There's our focus. There's our motivation. Looking to Christ. Remember how the writer to Hebrews put it? Let us run with endurance the race we have before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. We run the race with endurance, whatever things are thrown at us when we fix our eyes upon Jesus. Eric Little showed 1,800 men, women, and children in the internment camp at we in China how to run the race with endurance. And to this day, you can go to websites. This is pretty cool. There are people who are still posting their testimonies on on the internet. What they learned and how they learned to live the Christian life with faithfulness and endurance while interred at a horrible place called Waysian. As they daily got into the word of God in a way that God's word got into them and they fixed their eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter, Of their faith. And then get this. In spite of all their suffering and pain. They knew something of the joy of Jesus Christ. They knew the fellowship of his sufferings. Being conformed to his death. But we have to add one more thought as we close here. Paul wrote here in 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse 10. That God is the savior of all men. All men. But we know that not everybody's saved, don't we? John wrote that Jesus is the propitiation or he is the atoning sacrifice for the whole world. When Jesus died on the cross, he took the sins of the world upon him, all the sins. But only those who have received him in faith will be saved because they have appropriated him. Only those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. In other words, you can't look to Jesus or to God for that matter. You can't look to him for your strength. You can't look to him for your encouragement or for your motivation or for your transformation until you look to him for salvation. For salvation. To just place Jesus before you as an ideal. Well, he taught some good things. He was a prophet. He was a man of God. Whatever he is, to lift him up So, well. I'm going to try to live like Jesus without knowing and experiencing Jesus in salvation, to try to gain some kind of help from Him in prayer without knowing Him as your Savior is not only an effort in futility, it's a tragic, tragic, eternal thing of consequence. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for the encouragement and the strength that we gain through your Holy Spirit and through your word as we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Father, I thank you that no matter what it is that we're going through, even if it's just the, the regular everyday stuff. Somebody said one time that, you know, the trouble with life is that it's so daily. <laughs> it's just so daily. Father, we can have frustrations. We can have frustrations on a Sunday morning as we're trying to get ready to come to church and to, to come to worship. We know that Satan and the enemy of our souls does not want us to be even here this morning worshiping you. Father, we thank you that whatever it is, we can look to you. We can fix our eyes on Jesus, who is our example of godliness, who knew the joy of moving towards that which you had set for him, Father. And we, we thank you for this. I just pray, Father, that as each one of us, even this week, get into your word as we study, we fellowship with you, we pray to you, Father. We we spend time with you as we go to the gymnasium of our soul. Father, I know that you are going to do the things that you have promised to do. You are going to give us strength. You're going to give us nourishment as we feed on your word. You're going to give us encouragement. You're going to give us the ability to stand whatever it is that frustrates us or bothers us or even comes against us physically because we are one of yours. And Father, I pray also for those who would just look at Jesus but not look to him in salvation, Father. I pray that your Holy Spirit would be working And moving in their hearts to bring them to salvation in Jesus Christ. Where they can put their faith and their trust in Jesus, knowing assuredly that Jesus died for their sins. Knowing that Jesus has a purpose for their lives. One that's going to be in glory in heaven one day, but one, Lord, that is now walking and living with you. And beginning to experience what you have for each one of us. And for this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.